thank you for joining me, Mr. Ian McGilchrist, um, long-term fan and uh, very excited to have you here to speak with you. Um, appreciate you joining me. So I guess thank to frame you. this conversation, um, the topic of attention, uh, which I was surprised for your work, I suppose, in neuroscience, um, that attention is so central to that. So I kind of wanted to start yeah. off with how you think about attention and why it's so important for you. Yes, it's been an interesting journey for me because I was really trying to work out what the essential difference between the functioning of the two cerebral hemispheres is. I mean, there's no question that there's some difference and, and, and evolution has meant that all creatures that we know have brains have two parts of the, that, that neural network or to that brain and that they seem to observe the world in a different way. And when I realized it was attention, I was so steeped in conventional neuroscience that I just thought, well, attention, it's another cognitive function. But of course, it's not another cognitive function. Attention changes what we find in the world and the mode of our attention changes what we see there. So for example, um, if I'm looking at a body um, and it's the body of my lover. I see one kind of body. If it's the body of a patient, I see another. If I'm dissecting a corpse, I see another. If I'm dealing with an elderly relative who's very frail, my vision of the body is completely different. So what, what we mean by the body is, is not just one thing. It's many kinds of things depending on the context. And, it, and of course, this doesn't just apply to, to bodies. I sometimes give the example of the mountain behind my house. It depends how you look at it. Um, its name comes from a Norse expression meaning sloping rock. So we know that the Norsemen down this northwest coast of Scotland um, a, a, a couple of thousand, no, a thousand years ago would have seen this as a landmark of a place that was dangerous because it is. It's a, a place where ships have to be very careful with great rocks and outcrops. Um, but we also know that the Picts who lived in its shadow considered it to be a, a sacred place. It was also shelter for them. And uh, when people came up here in the 18th century, they saw a beautiful shape with many colors which they could draw or paint. And in the 19th century, people were more interested in the geology. It happens to be a very good example of columnar basalt formation. And uh, uh, as I sometimes say, that means that to a speculator, it means dollars, but to a physicist, it's 99.99% space. And the other 0.01%, we don't really know exactly what it is. Now, these are all perfectly reasonable ways of seeing the mountain. They're, they're each real. The question is, which is the real one? And the answer is there isn't a single real one. The attention changes what it is that we see. And of course, that then becomes the favored mode in future. If I find that it's very useful to look at something in a certain way, then I automatically adopt this in future. So you get a vicious circle that if you start off by, for example, supposing that a very clinically detached manipulative attention works for you, that must be the best way of attending. But it only is the best way of attending if you want to manipulate something and remain remote from it. So you can see that attention is important philosophically. And one of the things about my work that I've only really just come to, <laughs> I don't know why it's taken me so long to realize it, but it's that 
I don't think any neuroscientist has really disputed that there are differences between the hemispheres. And I, I in my latest work, I include about 5,000 papers showing such differences. So I don't think anybody could say, well, you're wrong about that. And philosophers don't think there's anything wrong with talking about different ways in which we attend to the world and have done at different periods in human history. And we've seen the world as a quite different kind of a place, for example, in 20th century West from the way it was seen in, 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 in ancient times by the Greeks or now by the Aboriginal people in Australia. So there are different ways of seeing things. The difficulty for scientists is making a connection between perfectly valid distinctions made in neuroscience and a philosophical connection with the lives of human beings. And this is to me fascinating, because if you're a neurologist or a psychiatrist, you automatically relate neurology and psychiatry to human beings. But if you're working in a lab, somehow you relate cognitive functions and things to just technical networks that computers might have. You don't think about what this really means for human beings. Mm. Yeah, and it seems it's so related to the seeming the kind of object subject division that we find in our society um is so palpable in the scientific perspective of a very objective naive realism real world and then certain aspects of kind of decadent romanticism where the world is all feelings and subjectivity and matter they're almost two poles of the same thing but do you see the two kind of modes of attention that you're talking about the hemispheric differences as causing or being different modes of attending that have become kind of part of our culture. The split is, it seems to be um, manifesting in all kinds of institutions and groups. And do you see it um, yes. as, as kind of scaling up in that way? I don't know if that's fair, but. I think it is. Um, and I have some thoughts about why. Um, I I'd just like to say that I think that the opposite of, and naive realism in which there just is a world out there that has nothing to do with us who are observing it um, is not so much a contrast with you did pre preface romanticism with decadent romanticism which is fair enough but it's really yeah. more the opposite is a kind of um postmodernism in which everything mm. is really just made up by us i mean there is no reality yep. independent of us so i think it's neither one nor the other but it's something more subtle an encounter that we have with the world and f for most of um us in parts of the world other than the modern West, I think those two ways of looking at the world have been harmonized, usually with the the take of the right hemisphere, which I don't know if I should explain this, but sees very much more than the left hemisphere, not just mm -hmm. sees visually, but basically understands far more. Maybe go into that a little more. bit for people. Um, I'm familiar with it, but yeah, just for people that are listening that might not um, have listened to as much yes, as you okay. work before. Okay, well, my um, belief is, and I don't know of any other uh, theory that explains so much, and, and nobody really has denied this, is that the reason that these neural networks of pretty much every creature we know are divided in this way is so that you can pay two kinds of attention to the world at once. Um, attention is really just the way we dispose our awareness of the world. And you can do it in two fundamental ways. One is to pay enormous attention to a detail that you want to do something to, eat it, catch it, pick it up, use it. 
And the other is a kind of attention, which is the very opposite of this. Instead of being very narrow beam and very detailed, it's sustained, open, vigilant, supporting a flowing and continuous view of the world, not made up of little moments of excitement where I want to get something, but the overall picture, um, looking out for predators uh, while you're looking for your prey. So these two things are necessary to all living creatures. And uh, they have to be kept apart to some extent because they're so different that they would interfere with one another. But they also have to be used together. And we mustn't be aware of the alternation of our experience of the world as it goes between hemispheres. Because if we did, it would distract us. It would become unnecessary information that would make it impossible for us to act smoothly and swiftly. So nature has, as it were, hidden that bit from us, but neuroscience can reveal it. And I believe that I've got a mass of data that reveals exactly this and the consequences you would expect. So in one hemisphere, that of the left, you just see little tiny pieces that are um, uh, uh, detached, well-known, familiar, unchanging, um, isolated, decontextualized, abstract, and inanimate. But in the other hemisphere, you see things that are never finally certain. They're never finally graspable because they're always moving and changing to some extent. They're always connected to other things. The context always matters and can change utterly the meaning of what it is that you're seeing. And in this world, things are vibrant and connected and you can see unique cases rather than just uh, abstracted types and categories which the left hemisphere sees so if you like it's slightly like the distinction between the map and the terrain that is mapped the terrain is infinitely complex and subtle but a map has to be static and very simple it, it, the, the less information it contains the better it is but the trouble is that we're mistaking a map in our minds for the reality that it represents and indeed, one of the ways of making a difference between the hemispheres is to say that the right hemisphere is presencing the world, whereas the left hemisphere is representing the world, literally making it present when it is no longer present after the fact. And that's not a small difference, because it's the difference between really being there and being with a two-dimensional representation of something, a diagram, a theory, a, a map, something that is quite separate from the original experience and could be a digital screen. <laughs> so we would no doubt come to that later. But so there's these two differences. And what I was really getting at is that the right hemisphere knows and understands and picks up enormously more than the left, but it still needs the left because it needs something that can see much less and go and do a quick and dirty job. In that sense, it's rather like a very good computer, a desktop computer for the right hemisphere, which is rather more the alive person. And so we need something that can do procedures, routine procedures, familiar procedures fast and produce results, but it doesn't really understand the results. So in a way, the right hemisphere both grounds our vision of the world and brings it back from the processing that goes on in the left hemisphere and reintegrates it once more. So that is an important distinction. And what I'm really saying is that we, we've got into a frame of mind, I believe, over the history of the West, where one of these two hemispheres has become dominant, and it's not the one that should be dominant. It's not the one that really understands more. It's 
the one that understands less. And of course, you know that in psychology, there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which states that those who know little think they know everything, and those who know a lot know how little they know. So it's a dangerous situation to be in, and it's been brewing in the West for quite a long time. I'd say really since the time of Plato and Aristotle, um, where this distinction between the analytic mind and the intuitive mind became overemphasized in favor of the analytic mind. Because that's really what we're talking about here, is a mind that breaks everything up into bits in order to understand it, but then forgets that you need to reintegrate the bits that you found. It's like somebody going into the garage and taking a motorbike pieces and leaving it all over the floor, and then saying, well, I don't know what this thing is or what it does. Uh, it seems like just a heap of junk to me, but, but that's because you've just destroyed its integrity by taking it yeah. apart. You've disassembled it and forgot to reassemble it. Which is what we see in academia all over the place with the kind of deconstructionist mindset, particularly in postmodernism. Um, and yeah, what I'm hearing you saying is that the left hemisphere then has there. Do you think of them as both kind of ways of opponent processing to grip onto a reality? Like you need both of them in a sense for us to be fitted yes. to the environment. And we've kind of fallen in love with one mode more yes. than the other one. And that's caused us to live in this somewhat reduced what John Verveke calls a propositional tyranny um, a kind of flatlands yes. ontology that you see mostly exactly. with reductionist, extreme reductionist materialism. Um, and so, yeah, is it, does this, does it somewhat solve kind of the, the problem of perception in philosophy? Cause it, it seems that so much of 20th century philosophy has been really stuck on that in a way of, you know, are we, just in our minds are we do we get to see out into the world um what is the reality out there is it just purely like i hear people all the time now like donald hoffman who says you know that we have no access to reality at all and that there's that really seems to be the question that so much hinges on so i, I wonder how you think about it in in light of the hemispheric differences yes well i think it's um is related to the hemispheric differences. So if the left hemisphere was to create an image of what the mind is, it would imagine a hermetically sealed room in which we were reading information off dials, but we had no access to reality. Because if you like, it is the right hemisphere, as I've said, in which things come to be present. So we're actually there, we make contact with that world and it affects us and we affect it. But a realm in which there are only readouts from dials doesn't admit of this possibility of an encounter in which both parties are changed. Now, I believe profoundly that most philosophies, including, alas, those of people I greatly respect, like Donald Hoffman and Bernardo Castro, they would defend themselves, I think, by saying, no, I've misunderstood, and that actually they think that reality is just one and the same thing, which is what we get reading off our dials. But I don't think this is, this answers to human experience. There's something there that isn't made up by us, but a lot of what we experience does come from us. And it would be easy and um, in a way rather simplistic, I believe, to collapse it into one or the other. Now, one of the differences between the hemispheres is that the left hemisphere constantly wants to collapse an opposition into one or the other. It's like what do you mean? It's either this or it's that. 
And you see this already in Aristotle, the law of the excluded middle. Well, yeah. sometimes things are not just this or that. They partake of, of both possibilities. And perhaps in slightly different contexts, you see different um, weightings of those, those things, if you think of it in that weightable sort of way. So, yes, I do think that is relevant. And, of course, it's true that whatever we see is only partial. But it's, it's not that it has nothing in it that is beyond the makings of our mind. So I see perception as an exchange, um, a reverberation, um, a reiterative process in which each affects the other. So the world is affected by the way we see it. And modern physics actually tells us that observing something can change it even at that level, never mind at the level of the mountain that I was talking about earlier, or the human body. So perception changes what is there, and that then changes us in turn. So we're in a, in a constant state of what the right hemisphere sees, which is change, but not chaos. There's a difference between something being flexible, flowing, moving, and being simply random or chaotic. Neither, you know, neither the randomness or the chaos can be applied to either the physical world or the experiential world. They both have continuity, they make sense, but they're also not rigid. So we now know that a deterministic Laplacian cosmos in which once you've specified the positions and the momenta of all the objects in the world, you can predict every single thing that will happen thereafter. We know categorically now from the last hundred years of physics that this is not the case. And it's not just the case in some wildly exceptional way, like in a physics lab somewhere under a mountain in Switzerland. It's true all the time because a, a couple of physicists actually bothered to uh, tackle the idea that what we experience is not really affected by whatever physics describes at the quantum level. That just doesn't come into ordinary experience. And they showed that even at the macro level of billiard balls hitting other billiard balls on the table, that physics tells us that after a certain number of collisions, we cannot, in a determined way, be certain of where the next ball will collide with mm. the next ball. And that's not after, I thought, well, maybe 100,000 collisions, perhaps 10 million collisions, I don't know. It, it turns out to be after eight, which is really extraordinary if you think about it. So in a chain of eight otherwise um, seemingly material interactions, we already enter the realm, not importantly, of one that because of our limitations we can't predict, but which is intrinsically unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, there's the idea that the attention is trying to solve that that problem of complexity of the different, I suppose, the the domains that we find ourselves in an attempt to try and grip onto reality because we can adapt to it and survive that way. Like, mm. I, I almost find I find the position a lot of the ultimate skepticism. I think it's self-refuting in a paradoxical way, which I think is very pertinent for your work, of course, on paradox, which is that, you know, I find a lot with even with Donald Hoffman, I was watching one of his interviews, which is kind of come to the conclusion that we can't, you know, know anything or we can't have any, you know, absolute truth. But that itself is an absolute truth. You know, the fact that there's no absolute truth has to be absolutely true. And you fall into this yeah. kind of, 
unusual like we can know nothing but we can know one thing about that yes. and so yes. i find it um it's just it there just seems to be something missing from the picture um that's very you know that yeah that's which is where we should build our you know mm. where we should put the flag because that's where we can uh if there if there's mm. somewhere that we can find that truth then like Plato proposes that it's not immediately given to us, but it's the result of a transformation. Like you have to leave the cave and undergo this transformational journey to see the reality. And then once you see the reality, then you it contextualizes all the other illusions, essentially. Um, but that there is that kind of transformational journey, I suppose. Um, yes, and, and the word journey is appropriate because... I would say that ultimately there is no certainty. So, mm. contra Plato, I would say that we can get closer and closer to truth, but we will never actually finally possess the truth. Truth is not of that kind. Truth is a relationship that is a changing, evolving, and one hopes improving relationship with something. But it approaches it asymptotically. It doesn't actually ever reach the x-axis or the y-axis <laughs> and, and then bingo we've got truth so i put it that way and that um alerts one to the the problem you began remarking on there which is that once you um, allow yourself one certainty you're already into a paradox because i believe that this is not certain what hoffman says it's a it's a it's a theory it's a paradigm. It may have an awful lot going for it. I, I believe it does. But I don't actually myself subscribe to it. I think it, it will turn out to be a useful stepping stone on seeing something beyond itself. Yeah, and that there's always something to see beyond. I like what John Verveke talks about, that uh, reality and illusion are relative terms that we like tall and small. Like we know the reality based exactly. on overcoming the illusion and that it's it's always like that all the way down but it's still real it's like pi like the numbers as we go down they're still you know it still is getting a, a better picture but there's no end to it in a, in a sense um i think i think that's right and that's something that incidentally is much more comprehensible to the right hemisphere's way of seeing things that they're intrinsically not certain that they're intrinsically involving other elements of their opposites even, um, because that's, as you know, from my l later work, um, the matter with things, uh, I believe that the coincidence of opposites is something that we have completely misunderstood or lost sight of, and that this actually would help us out of some of our problems now, if we saw what was actually happening. But, um, and, and we can talk about that. I just want to comment that um, I, I would like to say, yes, um, these two are opponent processes. In other words, they like many systems in biology, that they, they compensate one another and they allow for a fine tuning. But it's not as though we have a natural prejudice these days that if there are two of something, they must be equal, but they're not necessarily equal. And as I've already explained, the left hemisphere is inferior to the right hemisphere in its understanding, but it's, if you like, superior to it in its capacity to get hold of stuff. So in, in the business of grabbing, getting power, getting stuff and wealth and material, it is, it is unchallenged. But in all the rest, which is, what is this stuff that we're grabbing? 
What does it mean when we grab it? What are we doing here? What is a human being? What is the world? What, what is our relationship to the natural world and to, I would say, the spiritual realm, which is not taken into account at all in the reductionist scientific picture? And I think these are the questions that need addressing, are very interesting in the answers, at least the ones I have tried to give in, in the matter where things have excited a lot of interest. Yeah, and that there's something missing in our current framework that would allow us to, that would afford us more levels of meaning, more levels of transcendence, if we could make that attentional shift, I think. A lot of what I've read yes. in, say, Augustine or Plotinus is that kind of inward turn and then upwards like this, attending to one's capacity for attention. And it's in that going into one's own being that we find an object of being, which is the relationship with being itself. Um, mm. So in that attending to attention, we can start to see something that you miss if you just look always kind of outside. Um, and I think it seems very much that left brain world is is kind of stuck in that. It, do, it doesn't seem to allow people anyway of our current age that type of experience. I think we're ruling out so much of life, of the awe and wonder that the, the, the sheer amazingness of the whole business of there being anything at all and our experience of it and being in it. These are extraordinary questions that are ruled out out of hand by a certain very, I think, simple minded um, way, of, rigid way of thinking. And the result of this is that we no longer can see what the what is of value in life? People have lost any sense of what is value. The very word value now is often used, most commonly used, to mean money. You know, is the value in this? What the people are meaning is, can we make money out of it? But that is the left hemisphere's idea of value. Its value is utility. But as Lessing pointed out in the 18th century, what is the use of use? Because if you have no values higher than use, what are you, you're getting this stuff to be useful, but useful for what? More use, but for what? So the question is always, so what is it we really value? And I think we've lost sight of and demeaned and travestied the three great platonic values of goodness, beauty, and truth. Plato was a, a difficult figure for me because some of what he did was unbelievably interesting, exciting, intuitive. He developed some great myths um, and he he saw far more um, than he's often presented as seeing now. But he did also begin the process that ended up with um, a, a, a too narrow way of seeing things, which ruled out the possibility of this coincidence of opposites that was available to philosophers and cherished by philosophers prior to Plato, particularly for me, Heraclitus, who I consider the greatest Western philosopher that ever lived. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that mm, I'm trying to think, yeah, because the, the beauty, the good and the true aren't really possessable things. I'm thinking about when you brought no. up value, because value connects to attention so deeply in terms of a lot of the research on attention, the scientific literature, a lot of the time doesn't want to go there. And they talk about structures of priority um, or that attention is about optimizing, you know, what you're seeing oh, yeah. in a sense. But 
that that's valuing something over another you know if you're listening to a band and you're really focusing in on the singer you're you're valuing the singer over the rest of the band the audience the people outside you know and that so that question is kind of unavoidable and then we talk about you know what should we value then um which this might get us into the internet question a little bit as well because i what i see happening in the attention economy is it's competing to influence people's values what they what, what they think is important and significant um and oftentimes using mythology using all kinds of narrative mm. tricks basically to try and um encourage a value system that can be tr- profited from uh, basically and mm. i don't think the beautiful the good and the true fall into that category of a marketable <laughs> no, they product <laughs> and they're beginning to disappear from or not even beginning to i mean truth has been traversed so many ways in the last 50 years um goodness has been reduced to what is good for me and and um in terms of you know uh, stuff i need and want and and um beauty has been more or less uh, ripped out of the discourse of even the arts where it should be very important and of our attitude to the natural world you know you can you can make an argument for destroying an irreplaceably beautiful and awe-inspiring landscape because it will bring so much employment for two years in the community but you cannot weigh in this what is lost to the human business of living to the experience of being a human being and our relationship with the world into which we've come out of which we come and back into which we will go you know that is lost from the picture so yes the, the language in which people talk in in cognitive science is so reprehensible because it's already sounds like the language of the worst kind of um capitalism it's about utility maximization it's about um uh, making um decisions that will uh, profit us in certain ways but this is not the way that human beings actually work and psychologists should know this because there's a lot of research on this that in reality People often choose things that don't maximize utility in any measurable way. They prefer them. They prefer helping people at their own cost to being the kind of people who will, will never help anyone. They prefer having children that will cost them money, use up their time, <laughs> restrict their freedom, rather than not, because there's something there that is of value. Now, in other words, we've lost track of the things that give meaning to life. And I think they are very much things like um, the loves we have for others, our social connections with the community, the, our family and our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters, and the natural world around us, which is also, as many people in all spiritual traditions have seen, are also our brothers and sisters. And, and so there's, we're losing the relationships between ourselves and whatever it is that would give us meaning. And so we're thrashing around for something that will give us pleasure. And this makes us very vulnerable to things that will give us a little um, hit of excitement. Because instead of being so bored and, and, and negative, because we can't find anything that any longer has any meaning, commerce through the internet, through um, ads, through social media, is constantly vying for our attention 
because it can seduce us with a little hit of pleasure for a second. And in doing so, it's distracted us from any of the bigger, longer-term projects, which require a degree of disciplined attention over a longer span, concentration, going into something deeply. That would give you some pleasure, would give you some meaning, uh, make you understand more what you're doing here. But that's forbidden by this um, constant hijacking of attention. Yeah, and the connection between attention and dopamine as well, like the pleasure that yes, yes. that it's so much of goal-directed attention is mediated by anticipatory reward. And yes, the, uh, yes. what I'm thinking about is uh, St. Augustine's argument about finite goods and the, the infinite good, that this pursuit of finite goods all of the time, you know, sex, status, food, alcohol, whatever it is, um, that it, it's like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill. It just rolls back up and it goes back down. Once you get the reward, you want another one. And there's no mm. finality to it. And it actually corrupts your character in a way. It can become, mm. if you continue to pursue that idolatry, it can make you into a, a like a really a, a bad, or well, an, an unfulfilled person anyway. And his recommendation mm. that it's the infinite, that we it's the infinite goal that we should pursue, the transcendent. Mm. He often talks mm. about God as the goal. Um, mm. And that this is the absolute value that structures all of the relative values um, yes. appropriately. And it does seem in some way that we've lost that. And so we're stuck in the, the yes. domain of the just relative. We, we've lost the, the value of things that are valuable in themselves rather than valuable for something else. And, and one of the points I think that Augustine would make about God is that God is not a good thing to pursue because it will lead to eternal life or it will lead to anything in this world either, but because God in itself is the good. And it, this, is, this sounds a bit rarefied, but it's not really that rarefied. If you think about it, the things that do still give many people pleasure, like music and dance and poetry, and maybe meditation and maybe walking in nature. If you see these as good for you in some secondary sense, they improve your health or lower your blood pressure or whatever. This may be in truth a byproduct, but if you see it just like that, then you have lost the point because its point is that it has no point other than being in itself good, fulfilling and enjoyable. So we, 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 quickly latched onto by things that will tell us something we can get that will make us happier or more fulfilled. But, you know, as we, we're all too familiar, it doesn't. And I, I can tell you both from research and from experience that having stuff doesn't make people happier. As a psychiatrist, <laughs> um, some of the people who had suffered a great deal and had very little were some of the most remarkably stable and fulfilled people compared with those who got a lot, driven a lot, but were never satisfied. Mm. And it does seem like we've really hit that point a lot in the West where a lot of our material needs are met. We're not going to get eaten mm. by lions or die of starvation or anything, but existentially yeah. we're, you know, people's mental health, the statistics on mental health are appalling. The deaths of despair, the pseudo-religious yeah. ideologies that are, you know, filling yeah. the void for people. Um, so yeah, there is the material narrative of that that will set us free in a sense is missing. And I think 
I think it is this attention because I fall into that trap of using things or of looking at things as objects, even relationships. Mm. But what I've learned to do um, through philosophy is then to go back into those judgments and undo them in a sense to mm. take to look, see that I'm categorizing a person and then take the category and explode it and say, OK, but there's more complexity there. Make it bigger and bigger and then boom. Yeah. And then you can you have access again then to the this frightening and uncontrollable, but also very rewarding and joyful aspect of life. Um, mm, mm. And so I think there maybe life that itself. is. A, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but. I mean, I, I always feel that um, there's an attack on life itself and on nature. Yeah. These things somehow are seen as challenges to the mechanical model, and nothing must challenge the mechanical model. We must be turned into machines, faulty machines, of course, compared with machines in this paradigm. But this, of course, is what the stuff of the demise of a civilization and the onset of totalitarian control and dehumanization of people that Hannah Arendt experienced and wrote about uh, herself, of course, a, a German Jew who fled the Nazis. But she saw so clearly that what the Nazis were about was the seeking of total power and control and the reduction of human beings to zombies, really, that had no will of their own. And I'm afraid that there are other powers at work in the world at the moment that are leading us in this same seductive direction. Well, it's not really seductive when you see it for what it is, but we're being, we're like children. You know, when I was a child, I remember my grandparents saying to me, now, would you go to the shop and get us a loaf of bread? And I'd love that. And they say, now, if somebody comes along in a car and asks you to get in and offers you sweets, don't do it run away. <laughs> and what they were really referring to is, is the very obvious thing that when people wish some ill, they will seduce you with something trivial that gives you pleasure for a while. And I believe that in our blindness, this is where we're actually going. Linking this back to the blindness of the left hemisphere, just for a moment, <clears throat> the, the dopamine systems that are behind addiction are stronger in the left hemisphere than in the right. And this idea of the infinite is really not open to the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere sees the infinite as simply a series that goes on and on and on. But that's not actually what infinity is. Infinity is other in quality altogether from any finite series, however prolonged. Yes. And the left hemisphere, because there's a relationship with dopamine and certainty as well, as far as I'm aware, in terms of that you, the more secure you are, the more likely you are to have a increase in the tonic level of dopamine um, that people seem Possibly, to. Possibly, yes. It's complicated because we, we need so many different things and we can become mm. very unhappy when we're too unchallenged. Mm. So yeah. the, it's, it's, there are certain Maybe, cases sorry, in which we're not, rephrase not that. certain. Um, we have to but overcome that, some kind of obstacle that actually gives us pleasure. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I should rephrase that. I, I said it wrong in terms of that as we're approaching a, a valued goal, we that increases the level of dopamine, but that's in a sense decreasing entropy that we're getting closer and closer to a, hmm. um, we're, we're achieving, we're proving that our model of the world is functioning as it's supposed to be. Hmm. But that's hmm. kind of, 
again ignoring the the complexity of the world and um the bit that we're cutting out so i guess that would make sense in terms of the feedback loop of the left brain that it's mm. it wants to be in that place and we all want to be in that place but it has this mm. kind of blind side and i mean the technology is designed to keep us in that state i mean i just finished a literature yeah. review of all of the literature on um, the ethical issues, the social media's attention economy business model. So I looked at the medical literature, the psychological literature, and um, it all indicates that it's the design, the persuasive design is to get you into a flow state to keep you using it for longer than you're aware of. And a flow state is a very high dopaminergic state. So you have a concerted attack on people in that way, um, on their capturing their attention. Um Yes, yeah. and the tension is is not just something that is good for us, but good for the world. In other words, I, I, I'm um, known for a phrase, attention is a moral act, because it actually changes reality. Um, and, and so we play a, play a part in the, the business of what the world is. Our actions are not negligible. People think, you know, well, what does it matter what I do? I'm so small, the world is so large, and I can have no influence. But in fact, you do have influence. The, the way in which you receive the world, the way in which you attend to the world changes what the world is around you, and is experienced by the people who are in it. You attend to somebody differently. They experience something different. Not only do you experience it, you, the attender, but the attendee, the one who is attended to, is immediately aware of being a different kind of being if they're stared at in an aggressive way or if they're welcomed by a compassionate gaze. And so we are creating the world through the way in which we attend. And nobody can tell you how big or small the effect is. You know, we, 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 in a left hemisphere way, which likes to, likes to evaluate things by their quantity, <laughs> how much of this have we got? Um, it, it sees things that cannot be quantified as small, because if you look at us in the context of the cosmos, we appear very tiny. But when you talk about something which is an experience of the divine or just an experience of love or an experience of overwhelming joy how big or small are these things there is no answer to this and, and lovers constantly say you know my love is sort of deeper than the ocean higher than the sky whatever that is to express the sense that it's not confined by the everyday levels of uh, and we, we we have no idea of, of what it is we can achieve until we set out to do it mm. and that in that change of attention people can start to experience that in a way um it, mm. it's a really empowering um we don't know if empowering is the right word but it's a hopeful vision i think for people that they that that experience mm. is possible um if they yes. can detach their attention from the propositional tyranny of the left brain to a certain extent um something yeah. i was thinking yeah. of was uh, robert sapolsky's work who's got a new book out called mm. determined which is very popular which i've just i've been watching lots of interviews of him but i really just can't I can't get, but I mean, it just seems that this, the deterministic idea kind of kills that agency. It kills the agency of attention that exists so obviously. And as you pointed out, I, you know, it's not, just, I don't think it's just a moral act. I think it's the start of all moral acts. Like it, it's the beginning of ethics completely. Uh, 
if it doesn't exist, true. we don't have any morality. Well, um, I, I mean, I haven't read Sapolsky's book, so I can't really comment. But anybody who suggests that we are determined is simply wrong scientifically, never mind from a point of view of all our experience, which shows that we are capable of making decisions. You can always say, oh, well, they were determined down to the last... But, but, but physics has blown that one out of the water, as I explained earlier when we were talking. And it just simply isn't true. And it's very important that we don't give up that freedom because that freedom is just exactly what a machine doesn't have. Any AI, however sophisticated, can only work on what it has been programmed to do. And we are able to imagine things and a computer can't imagine things. It can try all kinds of other steps. It can decide, I don't like this one, I'm going to try a different approach. But that's not actually what we're doing when we're using the imagination. That brings us back again to the left hemisphere idea of how it is that we come to a course of action, which is by following steps in a procedure. But it's not a procedure, it's a process. I want to make that distinction. A procedure is something that has steps in it and will produce a, a predictable outcome. But a process is something is living and changing and not divisible into steps at all. It's like a river. A river is not made up of river slices. A, a river is one thing that is constantly changing and flowing. So these are very important ways of thinking for us. And they, they have an impact on the big questions that we need to address. Because um, I, I've said this before, but I don't think it can be said too often, that when we're tackling really heinous and, and, and as we say now, wicked problems like uh, climate change, uh, destruction of forests, poisoning of the oceans, the destruction of the habitat of indigenous peoples and their ways of life, all these, um, uh, you know, very difficult uh, things that we're doing, well, difficult, destructive, difficult perhaps to halt easily, but that we must try to do everything we can in our power to halt and if at all possible reverse. It won't do us any good if we're able to take the outward steps, if there isn't an inward change of heart or, or mind. So we really actually do need to think differently. Because as I say, if you conceive of doing something as just for my benefit, that it'll reduce my blood pressure or make me a better stockbroker or make me a killer on the futures market or something. I mean, this is this is not going to get us anywhere because we'll just be the same narcissistic, exploitative, competitive, disgruntled, ungrateful beings that for a great deal of the time we seem to be. We need to adopt instead an awareness to encourage, open ourselves to an awareness of the wonder inspiring, gratitude inspiring nature of the complex uh, complexity of the world that we're given for a while to live in. And that gratitude is an intentional attitude in a sense. You're choosing things to be, because there's an infinite amount of things. I do think about this sometimes, that there's an infinite amount of things to complain about. There's also an infinite mm -hmm. amount of things to be grateful for. So wherever your attention lies on that scale is going to dictate your reality in a sense. And our attention that's constantly being manipulated by the media to whatever crisis um, is coming up at the moment is is a lot of the time focusing very much on those um, constantly drawn into negativity in order to capture it, um, which is just a marketing ploy, really, um, when there is so much wonder in 
the day-to-day experience of the world and other people that gets forgotten about. Mm. Um, and I do think really there is, that's kind of the the conflict at the moment, particularly with so many people mm. online. And then I think AI, generative AI, the future of interactive AI as well, where people are going to have mm-hmm. relationships with these chatbots and they'll have personalities. And these things are really threatening to be serious existential distractions, um, probably at oh, best yeah. in terms of... Uh, taking us away from a lot of the important stuff because they could foster attention that um, they could help us to see more clearly. But when they're the object of focus, I think inevitably we're going to become more lost, um, unfortunately. Yes. yes. And I, I would say that although I agree with you and I was just saying that there is much in the world that one should always be grateful for and some degree of humility we need to regain about what it is how much of what there is we can really ever understand which i think is small william james said our ignorance is an ocean our our knowledge is a drop and i think it's still true but we assume that we've got it all we've worked it out this is the left hemisphere again knowing little thinks it knows everything Um, and and this is the problem of the world we live in in now and 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 the, the, this business you describe of having relationships with the machine which is taking your time taking your life and will leave you eventually old and sick as we all need to become and to die without having ever lived i mean it really will it really will be an instance of not having lived in a literal sense i i i already think that you know life to quote um a 19th century um, Austrian novelist, life itself no longer lives. There's something that's been drained out of the vitality of life for us. And it's put back into us by advertising, by by jazzy things that snatch our attention and promise us a kick. And, and But actually the fulfillment of life comes from slowing down, from listening, from making space in which the living world can contact us. And by the living world, I mean those things that are deliberately excluded by this, which is the wonder of nature, which is the wonder of deep relationships with one another, not with a machine, and that relation with the spiritual world. And I don't believe that AI can help us with that at all. I know there are people who do. I've just been at a conference where I was arguing very forcefully that I don't think AI can begin to help us with that. It may simulate, as it often does, a sort of concern or whatever, but that is just not what one is talking about here at all. Yeah. And I suppose that comes to a question that I wanted to ask you as well, which is, I mean, what does this view of attention, the the hemispheric, the two types of attention that mm. we have and the overlap, what does this mean for education and for, you know, our education system at the moment is very left brain focused. Do you see any way mm. that we can mm. flesh it out more, start to have some, you know, um, developmental movements really to uh, create some more balance. I do. And there are many answers to this question, but the one I'm going to put to you may surprise you that it doesn't start from revisions of the curriculum, though I think that that would be a good idea. And and the re-emphasizing of things that are being sidelined now, such as what uh, with good reason called the humanities. (laughs) 
um, rather than the so-called STEM subjects, which I, I don't disrespect, they're very important. And uh, I myself, for example, particularly always enjoyed mathematics, but th there are other things we need to know as well, philosophy, literature, history, music, something you know about the culture that we grow up in and, and poetry and, and dance and all these things are part of what open our life, minds to life. But the thing I want to emphasize is that we need to reverse not just in education, but right across the field, the encroaching power of administration, the, the incredible bureaucratization of universities, of schools, and of the lives of teachers, of the lives of doctors, uh, of the police. They're hamstrung by paperwork, by ticking boxes, by meta process. They don't have enough time to give to the actual job of being there, you know, in the police case on the street and feeling entitled to, you know, to do something about crime rates um, and of teachers actually to communicate their enthusiasms about things that they really know about, care about. That's what education did for me. I had teachers who allowed what Plato calls the spark to come across, you know, from the teacher to the pupil. And, and this can't be done on following, well, it's um, Monday morning, the 20-somethings of January, so what we've got to do is this exercise. And, 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 and the whole idea that education is about shoving stuff into children so they get the right answers is so typically and purely left hemispheric. There is a right answer, first of all, very left hemisphere idea. But also there is a, 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 a store where you can go to and find it, whereas the right hemisphere would say, but this is all problematic. There are many ways of looking at a Shakespeare play. There isn't one good answer to it. And your particular answer may be, you know, just one little tiny bit of it. Let's try thinking um, in creative terms about this. Let's be true to what is there rather than true to some formula we're applying. You know, this is this is what's missing. And, and in the universities, there is now this incredible um, timidity about speaking out against uniformity. I mean, if, if some speaker comes to say something interesting and controversial, they become no platform. And now there are whole departments in universities that are enforcing this. In other words, the exact opposite of what a university should be doing, which is encouraging the discussing of ideas. And that doesn't mean discussing ideas that we already know and like. Discussing ideas means something only if it means discussing some difficult ideas that we don't know and we may not like until we've heard about them more. So this is a crazy way in which we're now living. Second rate, mediocre people being churned out by a machine, an administrative machine. And we need to take that away and allow doctors to be doctors, to use their skill, their insight that comes from experience. And the same for teachers and the same for university lecturers. Yeah, it's interesting you should you mentioned the bureaucracy and I I remember my granddad telling me that in the 90s when he first started to hear about computers that the big worry is what everybody was going to do with their free time once the computers started doing <laughs> all the work for everyone. Um but it seems now that people are more drained, more burned out, more mm. overburdened than ever. Um it's had the opposite effect Absolutely. and people are more are less committed to their jobs because you know they're being run down by constant mm. engagement on the internet well they're being turned into machines and a lot of their life they're having to interact with machines but the ideal seems to be that you can have a sort of regular machine product of a teacher who will do a certain job and you know if possible they could be produced off a production line die stamped all exactly the same doing the same job but the glory of human 
everything is that we are different. And the left hemisphere doesn't see that. It only sees categories. So it does see that there's problems about, you know, men, women, gay, non-gay, whatever it might be, different races. But it doesn't actually see that there are individuals and they often don't conform to the stereotypes at all. Yeah, <laughs> and we're, yeah, just trapped in that view more and more of that tight categorical yeah, yeah. world. Yeah. Um I know. Yeah. yeah. And it does. Yeah. And of course, at the same time. Sorry, go ahead. No, this is, I was going to say at the same time, the talk is of diversity. It's very interesting because, of course, it's about conformity, uniformity. Yeah. 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 No. I, and it's not diversity of thinking or diversity of perspective or diversity no, of attention. No. <laughs> it's diversity no, of no. objective categories. No, no. <laughs> which is, is very interesting. Um, and how do you think for the humanities? Um, is there any way, do you think the humanities can live online or does it have to be, because that seems to have been the replacement. I mean, I've, I'm doing, mm. now doing my third arts degree, so I've had a hefty mm. time through the humanities at this point and there does seem to be more mm. going on in the internet than a lot of um, universities, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And are you saying interesting and rewarding stuff going on? Yeah, I mean, just what you think the humanities yeah. um, to ignite that should, spark should of be, people yeah. should be. Should yeah, be how lovely. I think that may happen. I, I think that, you know, um, unless universities look out, the, the whole business of a bricks and mortar university or a stone and mortar university um, will not, not be there any longer. Instead, it will be what you can do online. It's much cheaper. Um, and maybe more interesting and more various than so you know the universities really need to wake up and see that they are in at their best they're an irreplaceably wonderful place where people meet one another have interesting conversations with people of varying different disciplines and backgrounds and that this is a great thing but it must be encouraged through openness not through closing down yeah Man, definitely. I I can see. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I really hope that happens. To be honest, I I hope I see a lot of my mm. work attempting to do what in whatever small contribution I can to that as well because, um, mm. I've benefited mm. so much from it myself as well. Um, the character yeah, education yeah. that you get from philosophy and from oh. literature yeah. and from all of these topics is something that you can't you can't compare. Even. No. Um, and it, it is. I actually, yeah, I actually think that that you know it was true until about the. 60s i think or possibly just the 70s that in britain you couldn't probably leave school and go on to become a doctor or a scientist without having been you know trained to a certain level in school in general what i would consider the foundations of general education knowing something about the history and uh, the, the things that have been produced by your culture and by other cultures and thinking about them and debating about them, which is really the grounds of philosophy. But I think now that doesn't happen. And I, I, I do believe that if we want better medicine, we ought to have a system where medicine has to be a second degree. You can, you can go into medicine, but you must first have done two or three years in the humanities, because medicine is not just a science. Med medicine is really about people. And mm. 
And if you don't understand that and you don't realize that as a doctor, it's as much about your ability to intuit, see into, pick up the implicit and see the patterns in what is going on as much in general physical medicine as in psychiatry, but very much so in psychiatry. Unless you understand that, you won't do your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people and we see are increasingly mm-hmm. we see it more and more, and people are increasingly disaffected with, 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 with the with the, um, the care that they get, which is, which is so strange. You know, when I grew up, we thought that the the gap between rich and poor was definitely going to narrow, that um, freedom of speech was you know greater than it had ever been. Um, it was just a wonderful time to be alive. You know, things were flourishing. We were thinking that, you know, probably one day the Soviet Union and big totalitarian states will collapse. And now we look at the world and all those hopes uh, uh, remain unfulfilled. Many of the dangers that we, we, we thought we'd overcome are coming back to bite us big time. And, you know, we, we need to wake up. This is the problem. Um, people people can be lulled into a sense of false security. They don't realize how fast their freedoms are being taken away and their lives are being controlled by machines and it won't be a rewarding life. No, and that's the worst fear, isn't it, that you get to the end of their life yeah. and realize that you've squandered it. Yeah. Um, there is nothing worse. Yeah, 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 no, indeed. And that, of course, paradoxically leads to people being in fear of death, which is really fascinating. The less life means the more people hang on to it senselessly in the past when nobody could live without it meaning a great deal because they would they would see suffering illness and death around them but they would also see people triumphing over them they would see people learning skills producing beautiful things um, pulling together to create movements that were going to improve society this was a great thing and they didn't fear death you know that they, they they would give their lives to these things but nowadays we're all trying to, you know, the ultimate one is, you know, freezing ourselves in the hope that we can be brought around in the future. But I don't fancy being around in that future, even if I can be unfrozen. And I really think that enough is enough. You know, we, we have a good life. Well, I've certainly had a good life. I've had a very fulfilling life. I've had an enormous amount to do with all the things that really matter to me. And, and, you know, I'm ready to go. You know, if the angel of death turns up tomorrow, I'll say, well, where have you been? You know, I won't go <laughs> clear off. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very philosophical attitude. I think that's, a, you know, the memento mori. It is, um, that it yeah, it's based on love of life, not on not on hatred of life. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, no, I thank you so much, Ian. We've gone over time now, but I, I really appreciate this conversation and it's... Uh, give me much to think about as well and and it's going to be very useful for me and i'm sure for people listening so thank you so much oh great yeah yeah there's so much we could have talked about but maybe in the future sometime yeah yeah i hope so good thank you